Okay. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, this is not a difficult crowd to quiet down, so I won't have to spend any time doing that. Thank you all for your attention, for coming, and uh, welcome. Uh, welcome to the forum, I should say, on, at Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, this event is in collaboration with Reuters today. Uh, I'm Ivan Aransky. I'm the executive editor of Reuters Health in New York. And today's topic, as I think all of you know, is boosting vitamin D. Not enough or too much? Uh, in a minute, I'll introduce our expert participants. There are four of them who will actually be guiding us through a discussion of what I'm sure will be a very compelling and, and interesting subject for us to think about today. But just very briefly, I want to set the stage a little bit. As I'm sure you all know, the Institute of Medicine uh, came out with a report which included some guidelines for vitamin D consumption. Uh, last year, uh, two of our panelists were actually on that committee, and they're going to talk about that. The guidelines were slightly higher, and I'm really oversimplifying here, which is why I'm glad we have real experts. <laughs> the guidelines were slightly higher than the previous sort of reference standards that had come out. Uh, but they weren't dramatically higher, and I think we can all sort of agree on that. Uh, but of course, again, there are experts here who will say far more in far more detail. And where there was a lot of agreement, by my read of the report, and by many people's read, was on bone health, uh, osteoporosis. Uh, what can we say about vitamin D and that relationship? Where there was less agreement and where I think that there's still a lot of discussion going on is on sort of non-bone health issues, whether that's heart disease, whether it's cancer, etc. As we all know, you get vitamin D more or less from three sources, if I may, uh, food, supplements, uh, as well as uh, the sun. This not being the sun, but lights otherwise. So how do you put all that together? When there's conflicting or unclear evidence, how do you actually decide what guidelines to have? This is a national report. It has some, uh, obviously, it has a lot of impact on a lot of people. So how do you do that? And once you do that, how do you implement that report? How do you implement those guidelines? Those are the kinds of questions we're going to be discussing today, as well as those from the audience, and as well from some online questions uh, through Reuters.com as well as to the forum's own site. So without any further ado, let me introduce our four expert participants today. Uh, on my right, on video today, joining us from Ithaca, New York at Cornell uh, is Patsy Brannan. Um, Patsy is professor in the Division of Nutritional Sciences at Cornell. She was a member of that Institute of Medicine IOM committee that I mentioned uh, that reviewed dietary reference intakes for vitamin D and calcium. Welcome uh, to Patsy. Uh, on thank, my, you. thank you for joining <laughs> us. And I want to mention one thing, and I, I've mentioned this to our panelists. I'm going to ask them uh, when they make some brief uh, introductory remarks just to let us know uh, whether or not there are any conflicts of interest. I'm a journalist. I have to think about these things because uh, I also happen to think they're important. And these, I'm really talking about financial conflicts of interest. Um, and I think we all are comfortable with that, but I just wanted to make sure that we'll just introduce that very briefly. Uh, to my left uh, is Joanne Manson, who's a professor in the Department of Epidemiology here at the Harvard School of Public Health. She's also chief of the Division of Preventive Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, and she was also a member of that IOM committee that I mentioned. Uh, to Joanne's left is Bess Dawson-Hughes, who's a senior scientist and the director of the Bone Metabolism Laboratory at the Jean Mayer USDA Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging at Tufts University. Um, she's a professor at Tufts and is also past president and trustee of the National Osteoporosis Foundation. And finally, uh, Walter Willett, who is chair of the Department of Nutrition here at the Harvard School of Public Health, also the Frederick John Stair Professor of Epidemiology and Nutrition. And I did want to mention that uh, Dr. Willett has done a number of studies, as I'm sure we all know, in particular the nurses' health studies looking at dietary assessments, and obviously brings a great deal in, the, in that regard. So welcome to our panelists. I wanted to start, uh, Dr. Manson, if you could, with some remarks on your sense of the report, having taken uh, part in it and in that committee, and where we are now, and, and your thoughts. First, I'd like to add my words of welcome and thank the forum organizers for inviting me to be here. 
I think it's very important for everyone to understand that the Institute of Medicine Committee did a comprehensive and rigorous review of the evidence for both bone health and non-skeletal outcomes, the relationship to vitamin D. We looked at a number of non-skeletal outcomes, including cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, autoimmune diseases. Close to 1,000 studies were evaluated. And the committee did conclude that there was compelling evidence that vitamin D has a role in maintaining bone health. And the recommended dietary allowances were based primarily on bone health. The, the recommendation for 600 IUs a day for ages 1 to 70, 800 IUs a day for ages above 70 are believed to cover the requirements for vitamin D for bone health purposes uh, for at least 97.5% of the U.S. and Canadian population. But for non-skeletal outcomes, the types of outcomes that I mentioned, the evidence was found by the committee to be inconsistent, inconclusive, and not yet of enough, high enough quality to really inform the nutritional requirements for vitamin D. And I don't have any fi financial conflicts of interest. I do have NIH funding to conduct vitamin D research. Great. Thanks, Dr. Dr. Manson, setting, setting the stage a little bit in terms of what mm -hmm. the guidelines say, what the report said. Um, Dr. Dawson Hughes, you were also part of that committee. Um, tell me about uh, your, excuse me, you were not part of the committee. <laughs> My <laughs> mistake. <laughs> I'm fact-checking myself as we speak, as we do at Reuters. Uh, tell me from your own work, uh, your, your take on, on the guidelines. Okay. Well, uh, I believe there are many strong and positive features to the IOM report. Uh, I do take issue with several of the key tenets uh, put forward in the report, specifically uh, the choice of 20 nanograms per mil as the blood level of vitamin D uh, that is associated with the um, uh, optimum intake. I believe that the evidence supports very strongly uh, a higher figure of 30 nanograms per mil based on the amount of uh, D needed and the circulating level needed to lower risk of hip fracture, uh, which is, of course, the main endpoint that everyone agrees uh, with in this report. There are a couple of other areas uh, of substantial departure. One is the conclusion that um, that there is little D deficiency, if any, in the United States, and that therefore supplements are not needed. Um, if you use the lower cut point of 20 nanograms per mil as put forward by the IOM, uh, the N. Haynes report covering the period of 2000 to 2004 indicates that 30 percent of adults uh, would meet, uh, would be insufficient. If you used uh, the, in my opinion, preferred 30 nanogram uh, cut, uh, then 70% would fall below that, okay? The NHANES uh, estimates include the use of supplements, and since about a third of the population was <laughs> using supplements at that time, were they, upon recommendation of the IOM, to stop taking them because they didn't need them, then we would have a much higher prevalence of uh, levels below both 20 and 30. So I see no safety issues. The IOM was perfectly uh, on target, I thought, with raising the safety upper level uh, from 2,000 to 4,000. So I think um, what I would put forward, if anyone were interested in later in this discussion, an approach that might marry the two uh, strategies here, one for average risk individuals, and other approach, a more measured approach for individuals who uh, are at high risk for having low vitamin D levels. Very good. And I, I want to ask Dr. Well for his take in a moment. I just want to pull back one second and just sort of mm -hmm. point out that we're, what we're hearing is some of the, uh, I think, very difficult work that the committee had to do in terms of looking not only at, you can't simply come up with a recommendation based on this is how much everyone should have. 
you actually have to decide what a low level is. What is deficiency? Right. What is insufficiency? And so they're actually, you know, already we have two axes and a third sort of layer, if you will, of healthy uh, people who are mm -hmm. at risk, mm -hmm. healthy people who are not at risk, uh, and every permutation of that. So I just want to just sort of seed that a little bit mm -hmm. to, you know, make everyone understand just the difficulty that the committee had and some of the issues we're yeah. grappling with. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Willie, your, your take. Sure, thanks. And um, again, I have no conflicts, and I do appreciate the daunting task this committee had. There's a huge literature mm. on this. It's complicated, and probably what most people don't appreciate, these committee members put in many evenings, many weekends, all for no pay. So there's a lot of... There's uh, a reverse conflict of interest. Right, yes. <laughs> a lot of effort that goes into this, and, and it's a huge job. And it gets bigger every year as the literature gets uh, larger. Uh, I, again, totally agree that the raising of the so-called upper limit of safety, a doubling of that to 4,000 IUs a day was uh, a good move in the right direction. And the committee acknowledged that even up to 10,000, there's actually no evidence of any harm, and 4,000 was being super safety, super safe. Uh, I also, though, agree with uh, uh, Dr. Dawson Hughes that this uh, adequate limit amount of, of 20 nanograms per ml is, uh, is a low limit and that the evidence actually supports that people would be better off with a higher blood level. Uh, even if we focus just specifically on bone health, as Dr. Dawson Hughes said, the uh, evidence is to get the reduction from randomized trials to get the reduction in fractures with vitamin D. You need to get up to 30 mLs uh, in the randomized trials. And uh, 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 people who took lower amounts of vitamin D, 400 or 600 IUs per day, did not uh, have a reduction in fracture risk and their level did not get up to 30 mLs. And also the committee was really pretty schizophrenic uh, and using data from the National survey of uh, uh, vitamin D and bone mineral density to uh, set a part of the, justify the calcium intake, but they totally ignored the much stronger, much more robust call across all ages, all ethnic groups, and men and women, that people with uh, blood levels of vitamin D well above 20, even above 30 uh, animals, nanograms per milliliter, had better bone mineral density than people uh, with 20. Uh, uh, nanograms per ml. Uh, there is also the issue of uh, other endpoints besides bone health. There is definite evidence uh, uh, confirmed in other uh, systematic reviews that falls are reduced by vitamin D supplements, and that takes uh, levels, uh, getting up to levels above 20 nanograms per ml. And then there is all this evidence, a huge body of evidence that I agree with uh, Dr. Manson uh, has not been confirmed by randomized double-blind trials, but uh, for colon cancer, ex for example, many very consistent uh, studies showing about 50% lower risks of colorectal cancer uh, with higher blood levels of vitamin D. And, you know, I think it's fair for the committee to say, I don't agree with it, that you require randomized trials uh, to make uh, a recommendation, but a lot of confusion would have been avoid, avoided uh, if the committee had some, and the conclusions had something, said something like, uh, there's a, a substantial amount of suggestive evidence of benefit with higher blood vitamin D levels, uh, but it hasn't been confirmed in randomized trials, not because the trials showed no benefit, because they haven't been done. And, uh, and, and, and that's a description of the evidence, not that there's no benefit, mm. uh, which sort of a reasonable person would assume that many studies have been done and showed no benefit. In fact, many studies have been done. Um, they've showed uh, benefit, actually, but not by ran the randomized double-blind trials haven't been done. So I, I think that caused a lot of confusion. And uh, very often in medicine and policy, we're in situations where we don't have all the final evidence, the studies that we'd really like to have. Sometimes they're just not possible. Sometimes they may be many years. Uh, in coming, and so we're almost always in a situation of operating on the best available evidence, not the perfect evidence. And I think if you look at the data, most reasonable people would conclude they'd want to have a blood level of 30 nanograms per ml when they look at mortality, when they look at uh, fractures, when they look at colon cancer, many other conditions, rather than 20 nanograms per ml. Uh, I think we all agree more research needs to be done, but uh, here today we have to operate on the best available evidence. Thank you, Dr. Will. And again, just to interject a tiny bit here, 
I, I want to pick up on, on a couple things that Dr. Will was talking about that I think will sort of, I want to percolate throughout the room and throughout the, the panel as we continue talking today. Sources of evidence, sources of data, uh, where are you finding the actual information that you're basing results on, but also the kinds of studies that were actually done. Uh, we all can be comfortable with observational studies showing that there's a link, that there's a tie, that there's something going on. We're not quite sure what it is. We can't prove, as, as Dr. Willett was suggesting, we can't prove a cause-effect relationship in, you know, comfortably, uh, scientifically, until we've done that randomized control clinical trial. We've given some people vitamin D, various doses, other people don't get it, et cetera. Uh, and again, that's oversimplified. But, you know, what are we looking at and, and where can we justifiably and, and, and reasonably come up with guidelines as, as the committee did? Um, and finally, but certainly not least, I'm, I'm going to be looking at here, um, Dr. Brandon, uh, tell us your thoughts. Uh, and and uh, I understand that you're involved particularly in implementation, but uh, feel free to uh, tell us your thoughts on, on the report. Thank you, and I'd like to uh, echo um, some of the comments that have been made and, and make um, a couple of points that maybe haven't been discussed yet. The first is that it's true that you can find evidence of, uh, in some studies of some benefit at levels higher than 20. You also can find evidence of benefit in some studies at considerably lower levels than 20. So the difficulty is trying to take the totality of the evidence and look to see what it means in terms of population distribution needs. And that was a challenge, particularly for vitamin D, because it's very clear from the data that there's an interrelationship between the amount of vitamin D that one is consuming and the amount of calcium that one is consuming in terms of bone health and perhaps other uh, non-skeletal health outcomes. So that you can find people that have very high levels of, of circulating vitamin D who have rickets, and you can find evidence of individuals with very low levels of circulating vitamin D who don't have rickets. And what is likely the case is that, that the, those with higher vitamin D are consuming inadequate amounts of calcium, and those with lower vitamin D are consuming maybe adequate to above adequate levels of calcium. So, And when you look at the studies, many of the studies don't just give vitamin D alone. They give vitamin D with calcium. So determining the independent effects of vitamin D and calcium are quite difficult, and I think that contributes then to what judgments one makes when one looks at the evidence. So that's one point that I wanted to make. In looking at bone health, we actually did an integrated bone health uh, outcome, and we looked at a wide variety of evidence. And, and, and fracture risk was mentioned. Once you have evidence of causality, we looked at the observational studies as well to determine dose response. Because mo many times, randomized clinical trials do not give us sufficient evidence for dose response. They use a single dose, typically. And so observational studies can be quite useful in that regard. And again, when you look at observational studies for fracture risk, they vary from a level as low as, as um, 14 or 15 nanograms per ml to as high as above 35 nanograms per ml. So again, it's difficult to determine that dose response. And I'd like to make just a few comments about how much is too much, because one of the real concerns that emerged as we looked at relatively new evidence that's suggestive that there's not just risk of harm at low levels of 25-hydroxy-D, there's also risk of harm at higher levels. And this includes for outcomes such as all-cause mortality, uh, certain kinds of cancers, including colorectal cancer and pancreatic cancer and prostate cancer, cardiovascular disease, and a number of other outcomes. And one concern the committee had was an analysis that we did of the NHANES data, and we had data more recent than the data that was mentioned before by, by Dr. Um, Dawson Hughes. We had 2003-2006 data that had been corrected for the uh, recognized technical difficulties in measuring 25-hydroxy-D. And in those data, we looked at all-cause mortality in um, African Americans. And there, there was, again, evidence of this emerging U-shaped risk, as it's been called, 
but the inflection point was actually below 30 nanograms per ml in that population. So again, there's reason to be concerned about where we set the level and how we make this determination among what is admittedly quite a range of evidence. Thank, thank you very much, Dr. Brandon. Um, I think that's a great introduction. If I can just pull uh, not so much necessarily the, the highlight of what you were saying, but one of the things that is difficult that has been coming up a little bit is that we're looking not just at vitamin D, we're looking at calcium, and obviously we're looking at all sorts of things. Uh, people who have high, low levels of vitamin D, uh, there's probably something else that they're doing or not doing that is associated with that. Similarly, calcium, I think, in broad strokes, we can sort of agree on that. And so calcium, got to think about that as well. So I, I see a lot of issues that, for discussion in, in, the, in the time we have today. Um, vitamin D and calcium. Uh, should people be getting tested for levels? In other words, if we're talking about guidelines for how much to consume or get from the sun, et cetera, uh, should we be starting by testing levels? I think there are, uh, actually I know that there are a number of internists who do that, who of uh, primary care physicians who do that. Should people be doing that? How much should people be eating? What kinds of sources should they be getting their vitamin D from? All kinds of issues. Um, let's maybe start with, should people be getting tested? We have some disagreement over whether it should be 20 nanograms, right, or 30 nanograms, but if we can agree for a moment that there is a number, should people be getting tested? Or do we have to agree first that there's a number? In, in, partially in response to that, I do want to make the point that the RDAs are population public health recommendations, which is very different from a medical model of whether a clinician would decide that they want to test an individual patient's vitamin D level. They have risk factors, clear risk factors for vitamin D deficiency. They may have malabsorption syndrome. They may ha already have osteoporosis and many um, clinical conditions where very close monitoring would be indicated. On a population-wide basis, even though it really wasn't the charge of the IOM committee to make recommendations about screening, it was the view that wide-scale screening really was not um, indicated, that depending on what you consider to be vitamin D deficiency versus insufficiency, we did not agree with many of the cut points that were being used by clinical labs. We did not consider them evidence-based. Um, the view was that vitamin D sufficiency or adequacy was at a level of 20 nanograms, and, and that's what the committee um, decided based on a very large amount of evidence, looked very, very closely at several studies, and there was not this clear dose response where suddenly when you get to 30 nanograms, you start to see benefit. Many of the studies suggested a threshold at around 20 nanograms where there was not only no greater benefit in terms of bone health or other outcomes, some of the non-skeletal outcomes, there was no greater reduction in risk as you got above 20 nanograms. But as Dr. Brandon mentioned, you began to see a suggestion of a U-shaped curve where there was actually an indication of increased risk. So the committee would definitely have wanted to propose a higher intake if we felt that that was safe for the population. But you have, when you're talking about public health recommendations that are long-term chronic, 20, 30 years potentially, the level of evidence for long the safety of long-term intake of very high-dose vitamin D or even maintaining a blood level at 30 nanograms or 40 nanograms, the evidence was just not there, yet the evidence was quite strong that at 20 nanograms, you, you had bone health, there an evidence of a plateau, even in terms of the PTH level, there was a suggestion that the PTH, level, parathyroid. The, the parathyroid hormone, which is often used as a guide to what is the optimal 25-hydroxy vitamin D level for bone health, where you start to see no further decline in the PTH level as you increase um, vitamin D, we saw the plateau of the PTH level across a very broad range, including many studies were showing the PTH level plateaued at below 15 nanograms, a large number plateaued below 20 nanograms, and some higher, but it was not consistent. So the evidence was really quite inconsistent that getting above 20 nanograms would confer greater benefits for either bone health or falls. In fact, a recent study suggested that frailty risk 
increases as you get above 30 nanograms of the optimal level for frailty, what's 25 hydroxy vitamin D between 20 and 29 um, nanograms. The evidence was actually quite inconsistent and the committee looked very, very carefully and we certainly would have been more than happy to have recommended a cut point of 30 nanograms if we thought that that was safe and evidence-based for the population as a whole and that we could at this point in time say that the population can go ahead, get their strive for a level of 30 nanograms, take 2,000, 3,000, maybe even 4,000 IUs a day, which many people in the general population would require to get to that, that threshold of 30 nanograms because there's, there's actually an enormous difference between the amount of vitamin D required to get to 20 nanograms and the amount required to get to uh, 30 nanograms. There's almost a physiological response where you very quickly, with even a relatively small amount of vitamin D, will get up to the 20 nanograms, but to get to 30 nanograms, you may require well above 2,000 or 3,000. We did not think that there was enough evidence for safety to recommend that long-term. Um, the issue of the 20 versus 30, I mean, we could uh, uh, go on almost indefinitely on that. Um, I think that um, a practical and reasonable approach, you asked, should people be measured, mm -hmm. et cetera, um, I would approach that as follows. If you're at average risk for having a low 25-hydroxy-D level, then uh, take 800 units or 1,000 or some number uh, that is reasonable, no need to measure. And how, how would you, and sorry to interrupt, but how would you know how would a mm -hmm. particular person know or population know that they were at right. risk? Uh, uh, if you're at high risk, there's another approach. Now, who are the high-risk people? Mm -hmm. uh, there will be people who are obese, people with very dark skin, people who do not spend regular time out of doors uh, in the sun, uh, individuals who habitually wear sunscreen before they go out, those who are dressed in protective uh, clothing, uh, individuals with osteoporosis, uh, those with malabsorption, uh, individuals taking uh, medications for seizure uh, disorders uh, which accelerate the metabolism. So that's a, an example of people who would be at higher risk for having a low 25-hydroxy-D level. And when you think about it, that's a large segment of the U.S. population. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about so, sort of almost dividing the population. Right. And you can make that clinical assessment as an individual or as a healthcare provider. Mm -hmm. uh, if you identify someone as being at high risk or at reasonably increased risk, um, I think it's reasonable to measure their 25-hydroxy-D level to supplement with the dose that you can estimate. We can talk about the formula, but you can estimate how much they will need, replete them with that, wait three months uh, with them on that dose, and then repeat the measure to ensure that you have achieved uh, your goal, whether your goal be 20, 25, 30, or 40. So I think restricting the measurements to the high-risk people is appropriate, and I think it's good use of healthcare resources uh, because of the very high potential for benefit in correcting uh, D uh, insufficiency. Yeah, I, I think that's a very reasonable approach, and I would just add that uh, Dr. Dawson Hughes was, I believe, part of a committee from the National Osteoporosis Foundation that looked at this, had very extensive discussions about uh, an approach um, which, which I think is reasonable. Uh, but, and I'd like to point out that even if you uh, take the IOM very low bar, which I disagree with, of 20, uh, there's still uh, in that report, 11% uh, of the European-American population, 54% of the African-American population below that level. And uh, that's tens of millions of Americans below that level. And to ignore them and say it's no problem uh, is, is a big mistake. Uh, and 
uh, you would want to know if you are below that level uh, or do something about it. And I, I think the strategy of, I, I don't, I agree also with going out and blood testing everybody will add a whole lot to medical right. care costs and I, I think is not necessary, which is why I think sort of separating the population into two components uh, uh, is a reasonable way to go. And uh, those numbers, again, of 11% of European Americans, 54% of African Americans is very low. The re more recent data show 30% of Americans below that level. I'd also like to point out that the statistical method used by the committee was completely flawed in determining the dose because they uh, put it, plotted it all on a figure, fit some fancy curves through it. But those data points were for population means, not for individuals. So even if the population mean is at a, uh, you attain on average with a certain dose, still 50% of the population is going to have a, a blood level lower than that average. And that really needs to be considered carefully. There, there is a big spread, as I think several people have pointed out, for any given dose, a big spread in the blood levels uh, that you'll find if you actually measure them. Dr. Manson, I saw you. Uh, yes, I think a, a really key point is that the IOM guidelines, these public health recommendations, do not preclude the clinical decision making based on risk factors. As um, both of you have mentioned, I think that it's extremely reasonable for patients who are at higher risk, individuals in the population who have a number of risk factors for vitamin D deficiency to be screened by their clinicians, to be treated with high dose vitamin D, to be monitored closely. But the charge of the IOM committee was the public health recommendations. And these are two very different models, the medical model and the public health guideline model. But they are compatible with one another. So I don't think that the IOM guidelines were neglecting any segment of the population. In fact, we were quite concerned about these segments of the population that might have vitamin D deficiency. And a large percentage of the report is dedicated to risk factors for vitamin D deficiency, what to do in terms of people who have these risk factors, and it was certainly consistent with screening members of the population who were at high risk. It was just not a population-wide uh, recommendation. And well, Dr. Bestosan, I just want to mention that we will be taking questions. I think Dr. Quickly, Brandon also. Dr. Brandon's got <laughs> something also, so I'm going to, yeah, yeah. I'm going to, I'm just yes. Dr. Okay. Bestosan and then Dr. Brandon. Yeah. Uh, the hitch comes in the IOM's conclusion that 97.5% of the population uh, will be served by 600 to 800 units when the proportion of the population that is at high risk uh, for low D levels is far greater than 2.5%, as uh, you would know if you look down a list of obese, dark-skinned, etc. We're talking about a large segment of the population. Dr. Brennan? Yes. And I would like to comment on that and clarify some aspects of how we approach doing our simulated dose response that address a few of the concerns that have been raised. First of all, we assumed minimal sun exposure. We had uh, the benefit of several studies that were done in the winter at extreme northern latitudes or in, in Antarctica. Under those conditions, one can assume that very little vitamin D is being endogenously produced, and therefore our recommendations are fully applicable to individuals in the population, irrespective of their skin color and, that, that's and pigmentation. That's misleading. That wasn't uh, individuals. That was population averages that were used in that analysis. It, it was population averages, and I would like to address that and explain how we did it, because we actually used our simulated dose response curves quite conservatively. And if you'll look, you'll see that we chose to, quote, overshoot the achieved levels. And we did that because of the variability and because we did not have um, the same kind of uh, population estimates. They, these were all randomized clinical trials and in most cases were quite small numbers of individuals in the randomized clinical trials that we used for the simulated dose response. The issue then came that some gave us uh, means, some gave us medians, and a number of the studies did not give a kind of estimate of the variance that would have allowed us. If they'd all given us standard deviation, we could have addressed your specific concern somewhat more um, uh, to our liking as well. 
But we were able, it, it, they were the data that we had and the only data that we had available to us that allowed us to simulate the dose response. We therefore overestimated because we knew there was a, a hint in the data that we had, which was limited, that there might be more variability in older individuals. And so at um, the level of 600 and 800 international units, it actually achieves um, at the lower predicted confidence intervals, uh, serum 25-hydroxy-D levels that are closer to 25 nanograms per ml rather than 20 nanograms per ml. And we did that because we're cognizant of the need to protect the public health. Thank you, Dr. Brennan. Um, I want to take some questions out from the audience, and um, I believe we have a first question. Uh, and please uh, introduce yourself and just let us know who you are when you, when you speak. And there's a mic circulating uh, for those of you who may not have lavaliers, which I think is most of you. Um, so please uh, make sure to uh, identify yourself, and, and uh, we will get to you. Please. I'm Lillian Chung, Editorial Director of the Nutrition Source, Harvard School of Public Health Nutrition website. And thank you, all the experts, for this very important discussion. And my question to you is, if you were in charge of implementing public health policies in school districts, uh, what is one message that you should be given to the schools and to parents about vitamin D? Well, first, I think it's very important to understand the dietary sources of vitamin D. So the key dietary sources would be the fortified dairy products, fortified cereals and juices, and fatty fish. There is some vitamin D in eggs, but those are the main dietary sources, also mushrooms, some, some forms of, of mushrooms. So Kids probably won't be getting much from the mushrooms. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So I, th I think that that's, that that's very important. Um, and also, as Dr. Brandon was mentioning, that we're not recommending increasing sun exposure for the purpose of getting adequate vitamin D because for someone who doesn't get enough, it is possible to take a supplement without the risk of skin cancer. However, younger you know, children do get much more sun exposure um, than adults in general, so they're more likely to have that endogenous uh, component if they are, are um, outdoors. So I, I think that it is very important to consider the dietary sources and to ensure that the school lunch programs and the, you know, the diets of children do have adequate vitamin D intake through, through these sources. And I think an increasing number of foods will be fortified um, with vitamin D. The labels uh, have to be read, and children aren't likely to do that. <laughs> Dr. Brandon. Uh, yes, and I'd like to follow up on Dr. Manson's comments, because if a child is following the recommendations in my pyramid and the dietary guidelines, especially with the new recommendations for seafood consumption twice a week, and that seafood is either salmon or tuna, and um, up to one ounce a day of their grains is being consumed from a fortified grain, it's actually um, possible to get very close to the 600 international units that are being recommended. Well, that, although grain is not fortified routinely at, at present, and uh, the actual survey data show that almost no Americans get up to 600 uh, uh, IUs of vitamin D per day, uh, and kids are, are if you look at the national data, they're coming nowhere close to my pyramid, and they're not going to in my lifetime, uh, just given that we've worked hard and made almost no change over the last 30 years. So I think it's, it's totally reasonable for children to take uh, a supplement of vitamin D, that, at the, not, not a megadose, just at the uh, level of 600 IUs per day, which... Yeah, uh, looks like there's some agreement yeah. on that, more or less. Yeah. You know, I, I yeah, and actually, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends 400 international units a day of supplemental vitamin D for all children through age 18. Yeah, I think it's a good recommendation. Just a technicality uh, regarding uh, fatty fish, and that is that farm-raised salmon uh, are not feeding on planktons, which are the source of vitamin D in wild salmon, and so you will not actually see a whole lot of vitamin D. 
unless they start fortifying the salmon food. Now that would be an idea. <laughs> I think we can have another panel on the fortification of the vitamin of the salmon, but thank that's a good point and thank you. Uh, questions. I, I believe there's one in the back. Hi, my name is Pat Skerritt. I'm the editor of the Harvard Heart Letter and an occasional writer about nutrition. Um, something that several of the panelists and other nutrition experts stress is the importance of food. Um, you can't get your vitamins from a vitamin bottle because we don't know all the vitamins that are in food and how they interact and how they work together. How does that apply to sunlight and vitamin D? We talk about fortification. Is there any evidence at all that, that when s your body's converting uh, using sunlight to make vitamin D, it's doing other things that may also be contributing to the helpful pathways. We actually looked at that question. There was some interest in whether results would be different and according to the source of the vitamin D, endogenously synthesized versus exogenously taken as supplements or through food. And we really could not find any clear evidence um, that there was a distinction. Though it is an important issue, and there are some studies suggesting that sun exposure may have some effects on the immune system that may be uh, of relevance, but it was certainly not evidence to the point where we could make a recommendation to increase sun exposure, which is classified as a carcinogen, has been linked to an increased risk of skin cancer, and to go that route rather than uh, trying to get the vitamin D through foods or supplements. Other thoughts on that? And if I could comment as well, I think it's clear from the latest NHANES data, the 2003-2006 data, as Dr. Willett said, most Americans aren't consuming uh, the recommended dietary allowance of 600 or 800 international units, and yet they are achieving the 25-hydroxy-D levels linked to those consumptions. And the inference is, quite strongly, that they are getting incidental sun exposure despite our recommendations that everyone um, use sunscreen and avoid sun exposure. So that's a piece that we really thought needed much more research and we really do need to understand the potential benefit of sun exposure. And the question really is, is there amount of sun exposure that will provide sufficient amounts of vitamin D and not increase the risk for skin cancer? And, and we really don't have data to answer that question. We have another question uh, here. Hi, uh, Jay Winston from the School of Public Health. Uh, a question for Dr. Manson, kind of um, having to do really with the philosophical underpinning and approach of the IOM's recommendation and the charge to the committee. Uh, earlier in your remarks, you made a clear distinction between the public health model and public health recommendation on the one hand and clinical medical approach on the other. Um, but wouldn't a population-wide recommendation for a high-risk population be a public health recommendation? And why would you think of that as outside the domain of public health just because we're not talking about the means? Shouldn't, couldn't the charge to your committee be a public health recommendation for the mean and then for the high risk? Well, we did include in the public health recommendations chronic conditions that were very prevalent in the population. So our public health recommendations do apply to overweight and obese individuals, though there certainly will be some individuals a clinician will make a decision you know, to, to screen for vitamin D and treat with higher doses. But we did not exclude overweight or obese individuals from our recommendations. And as Dr. Brandon mentioned, because we had the assumption of minimal sun exposure, um, the skin pigmentation issue, living at higher latitudes, winter months, were not key factors in the amount of vitamin D recommended because we were already addressing that there would be very minimal endogenous vitamin D synthesis. Um, so we did believe that the recommendations of the 20 nanogram cut point and then 600 to 800 IUs a day would cover the needs 
for a large swath of the entire U.S. And, and Canadian population. But again, this still allows for clinical judgment and the discretion of the clinician in making decisions on a case-by-case -case basis. We have more questions from the audience. Just maybe while we're waiting, I sure. wanted to come back to that safety issue that, of course, uh, Dr. Brennan raised that uh, uh, you can take too much of virtually any vitamin or any mineral and you'll get toxicity. So there's no question you can overdo vitamin D. But the levels, uh, blood levels that we're talking about, 30 or even 40 uh, nanograms per ml, that there's no evidence of harm there. Or again, the vitamin amounts that we're talking about are well within the upper limit of 4,000. Even 4,000 is safe. And if you look at the, the I think the uh, committee really overblew the safety issue uh, uh, in an imbalanced way. Of course, we want to pay lots of attention. We have to be double careful about that. But the same study that was quoted, the NHANES study, is suggesting a U-shape. In fact, it wasn't a U-shape. It was a, a big inverse relationship with higher blood vitamin D level and lower mortality, a little tiny blip at the end maybe that wasn't even statistically significant. But if you take that same data, people with 40 uh, nanograms per ml or 30 nanograms per ml had substantially lower total mortality than people with 20. It was a, a direct linear relationship over a wide part of the dose response curve. And you know we, pay it, we should pay attention to the very high end. I agree with that. But again, the levels that we're talking about where both the, intake are well within the range of safety. Yes, there were a number of studies that suggested a U-shaped curve and some concern was not just the NHANES study. There was also a bone health study from the Women's Health Initiative looking at African-American and white women where there was a suggestion that the optimal 25-hydroxy-D level for the African-American women was at a lower level and a significant increase in the risk of fracture at levels getting ab above that uh, 20 nanogram cut point. Uh, that was one thing. There was some evidence for pancreatic cancer of increased risk in some studies at higher levels, even though that has been controversial. Some other studies have not shown that. There was concern about um, aortic uh, vascular calcification at higher uh, blood levels of 25-hydroxy-D. There was another all-cause mortality study beyond the NHANES one mm -hmm. suggesting this inflection and some increased risk. Um, and, and you got what what is that sort of point that you're talking about? In other words, and, and they may not have been consistent, yeah, but... At, as you got with, with some of these other studies, it was even at 20, 25 okay. nanograms. So we're not talking about and it. No, at, I, at, I disagree. We'll have to go over that. At, it, it, was, it was much higher, up by 40 or 50 above. And, you, and Haynes, this, yeah, yeah, that's and, the and, and all the other all literature, cause literature mortality too. So there's clearly. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's that was at a higher level, but there were other studies, including the bone health, the pancreatic cancer. We looked very, very carefully. This was one of the reasons why we didn't just decide, go with 30 nanograms because there's no increased risk that we can identify and it would cover those people who might otherwise not get enough at 20 nanograms. There was concern <clears throat> that if you make a public health recommendation to get to 30 nanograms, there might actually be some segment of the population at, at increased risk at that uh, level. With all these concerns, I would rather wonder why 4,000 units was considered uh, safe. Uh, okay. 4,000 units is not a target level. And, and it's really important to understand mm -hmm. that the RDA and the tolerable upper limit upper intake level do not provide a range of safe intake. The point is that at 4,000 IUs a day or f at, or at um, a level of 50 nanograms, there was already evidence of adverse events. There was already evidence in the literature of the adverse events. And there's very little research, there's very little literature about the long-term safety of levels that are above the RDA in that range of the RDA to the tolerable upper intake level. And so we do not recommend that you just take up to the tolerable upper intake level or use that as a target level. That's not what I read in the report, that it said there was no evidence at 4,000, even no evidence up to 10,000. We're talking about and acute toxicity. It's, it's, acute toxicity it's, it's, is so very different from the I, 
long-term con. I, I think we can agree there's a disagreement. I know we have a couple questions, at least a few questions, several questions from uh, online, uh, people who can't, couldn't be in the room with us, and I want to just get to a couple of those. So. Right. Yes. Hi, I'm Robin Herman. I'm the uh, director of the forum, and I'm, uh, I've got, we've got a slew of questions from our online audience. Um, and as you would expect, a uh, number of people are asking, how does this information apply to me? Uh, they're concerned whether they're in a risk group. So I'm just going to read you uh, three questions, and maybe you could answer for each of these people. Even though it's been touched on, uh, maybe they didn't you know, catch that. Um, one question is from uh, Christine Niles, who's uh, in, uh, at the University of Alaska in, in Fairbanks. And she's saying, please address vitamin D requirements in far northern regions where there are very cold climates and not much opportunity for sunshine for approximately six months of the year. Um, Even then, further uh, north than Ithaca, Dr. Brown. Right. Yeah. <laughs> 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 right. And then, and then here's, the, here's one from uh, Julie Smith in, in Nova Scotia. She's a junior high school teacher. She said, last year a student who was working on a vitamin D study asked whether wearing sunblock would prevent skin's absorption of the vitamin D that naturally occurs in sunlight. I still remain stumped. So I think you can help her there. And then lastly, um, uh, another question, uh, many women who observe moder uh, modest dress and, and keep themselves covered, um, uh, what kind of uh, vitamin D should they add to, to their diet? So sort of, if you will, uh, places or people who are not getting the kind of sun that mm -hmm. even again in Boston or New York where mm -hmm. I am, you're getting. Uh, mm -hmm. Recommendations, suggestions? Well, sunscreen so does. I Go on. Yeah, okay. so I might feel that um, uh, the recommended dietary allowance of 600 to 800 covers those individuals, even in Alaska, um, because the, cl the studies that we looked at were at very high northern latitudes, uh, 50 degrees north or in Antarctica in full darkness. Um, the issue, and the same would be true for uh, clothing. The issue of sunscreen is a very good issue. We don't have a lot of data. There is at least one study that was done in Australia um, that suggests that with appropriate amounts and um, repeated application of sunscreen, that there could be some um, endogenously synthesized vitamin D, but we really don't know enough about that to say anything conclusively right now. It's one of the areas where we need further research. Others? Um, uh, there were several questions related to how can I, as an individual, uh, categorize myself or classify myself in terms of risk. Um, and I think it's worth maybe repeating some of those uh, risk factors. One is being overweight or obese. These individuals will have ambient lower levels and will have smaller increments in response to supplementation. Uh, Dark-skinned individuals will produce less vitamin D uh, in their skin with sun exposure of a, of a fixed amount of time, and so they tend to be lower. Uh, individuals uh, with ineffective sun exposure, that is the sunscreen users, the people out with protective clothing, etc. Um, individuals with malabsorption. Uh, those on malabsorption, I, I should have okay. thought this earlier, but yeah. just maybe explain. expand a little bit on that. That would be, for example, individuals with celiac sprue that's not well controlled, individuals with inflammatory bowel disease who may have had much of their distal small bowel removed. That's where the uh, much of the vitamin D is absorbed. So they would uh, be tending to malabsorb vitamin D. So is there gonna, these are people who would be eating a lot of, taking a lot of this in. And not, and not getting an appropriate absorbing. step up in the blood level. Mm -hmm. uh, individuals on uh, anti-seizure medications, which causes the liver to metabolize vitamin D more rapidly and therefore lowers the level. Individuals with osteoporosis, in our osteoporosis clinic, uh, we will see almost uniformly uh, across these patients low uh, initial 25-hydroxy-D levels. So that's kind of a starting list, and you can self-identify using most of those. You yeah, know, I, I actually remember uh, working on a story a number of years ago now, uh, the Orthodox Jewish community in Brooklyn, uh, where children were actually developing rickets. Right. This is a, a disease that we supposedly don't know from anymore, and yet there they were, and there was mm -hmm. a pediatrician in the community who was working with uh, families to try and, obviously this was a sun exposure problem, very modest dress. In particular, yeah. Um, were there other questions from the audience? Yes. 
Hi, I'm Katerina Maslova. I'm the doctoral student in the Department of Nutrition. Uh, this is a question for Dr. Willett and um, Dawson Hughes. Um, how you would have approached this problem if you were on the committee in terms of focus, emphasis, or analytical strategies? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for yes, the question. Right, yes, sir. <laughs> You'll find yes, yourself yes, on okay, the committee. Right, yes, <laughs> the next well, maybe I'll have to uh, buy some drug company stock and keep myself <laughs> off the committee. <laughs> but. Um, no, it, it is a, a, a challenge. Um, I think a lot of this is uh, how the findings were communicated. I think if there had just been a more uh, straightforward description of the conclusions, it would have solved a lot of the, uh, avoided a lot of the confusion. Again, uh, you know, we can look at the evidence, different people can interpret it uh, different ways. I think there were some serious flaws in the report, uh, including the uh, estimation of the required uh, dose, uh, even to get you to uh, 20 nanograms per ml. Uh, but I think, again, even if you accept that the bar was uh, 20 nanograms per ml, I think expressing the, un instead of concluding that there was no benefit with higher amounts, it, the honest uh, and I think accurate description is there's lots of evidence of benefits with higher blood level of vitamin D. It has, those haven't been proven by randomized controlled trial, and we clearly need uh, more research in that area. I think everybody agrees with the need for more research, but uh, it was expressed as a cut and dry issue, and uh, in reality, there's a, a lot of uncertainty, and people can make it uh, different individual choices uh, based on whether they want to wait for a randomized double-blind control, double control trial or go with the best available evidence. And this is something that, uh, and we'll get doc, Dr. Hughes in a second, um, something that has come up before in the presentation of the guidelines, if you will, mm -hmm. the communication of them. I know that there was a, a forum event uh, in mm -hmm. the fall about mm -hmm. uh, mammography, breast cancer screening, mm -hmm. uh, which one of my uh, former colleagues took part in. And that, again, a lot of the criticism was about there was plenty of criticism about the report. A lot of the criticism, however, was about the communication of those guidelines. So I think that's something, it's a thread here that maybe we should pay attention to. Yeah, yeah I agree. And I, I think uh, it was categorical in uh, the intakes uh, required for 97.5% of the population when a large proportion of our population is at risk for low levels. So I think uh, more uh, careful attention to that allowance uh, would have uh, been a favorable uh, approach. Other questions uh, from the audience? I believe we have one uh, in, in the front here. Okay, Just going to so. wait one moment while the mic gets to you, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, Mayor Stanford, Department of Epidemiology here at Harvard School of Public Health. Um, I've read the same papers and come to a pretty different conclusion from the IOM, which leads me to take 3,000 IU per day. But uh, I wanted to push uh, Dr. Brannon and maybe Joanne a bit on the, uh, the this risk side of the equation. Um, would you feel that uh, if you found yourself with a level above 20 that you should take measures to lower your vitamin D level? Are, are people being at put, putting themselves at risk if they, for whatever reason, metabolism or being out in the sun, they, they have a level of, of 30? Is that a, should they take action to put themselves at the lower level? Dr. Brennan? Well, I would say that when we looked at this emerging evidence, although there is um, a, a range of levels of 25-hydroxy-D at which this emerging risk at uh, the higher levels um, is seen, the uh, concordance of, albeit limited evidence right now, is uh, around 50 nanograms per ml, and that's the level that we linked the tolerable upper level. So I would say to somebody, if your level is between 20 and 49, I don't think that I would particularly worry about that myself very much. Although there were 14 of us on the committee, and I think if you ask each one of us, you would get a different answer. And that's a segue to hear Dr. Manson's answer. <laughs> 
Well, I, I do think many members of the committee would have disagreed uh, because the, the point was made very clearly that it was not a range of intake that would be considered um, recommended anywhere between 20 and 49, but rather once um, many of the studies were suggesting that even once getting to 20 nanogram, to 30 nanograms, there were a few outcomes that looked like an increased risk, and then there was no consistent evidence of greater benefit between uh, 20 and 30 nanogram. So I would say if you are taking 3,000 IUs a day or 4,000 IUs a day, and your blood level is 40 nanograms, that you may want to just be aware of the evidence, the, the conclusion of the Institute of Medicine Committee that there was not consistent evidence of greater benefit above 20 nanograms and there were concerns about some risk for a number of outcomes even in that range of 20 to 49 and then once you get to uh, 50 nanograms, some real concern about um, adverse events. So I would leave it at that. Well, thank you all very much. Uh, I want to thank our panelists who are terrific and really certainly a spirited debate, which I expected and appreciated. Uh, Dr. Patsy Brandon, Dr. Joanne Manson, uh, Dr. Best Austin Hughes, and Dr. Walter Willett, uh, please a round, a round of applause for them. That, that concludes uh, today's forum, the Harvard School of Public Health Forum in collaboration uh, with Reuters on boosting vitamin D. Thanks very much for those of you who have been paying attention at home, watching us, and will hopefully watch us uh, in an archive. And thanks very much. Take care. <laughs>